episode 244, a playbook for jumbo employers or providers, consultants, carriers, or pharma who get paid by jumbo employers. Today, I speak with Lee Lewis, the newly minted chief strategy officer over at the Health Transformation Alliance. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I speak with Lee Lewis, who is the newly minted chief strategy officer at the Health Transformation Alliance, otherwise known as the HTA. The HTA is a group of 50 major corporations that have come together in an alliance to do one thing, fix our broken healthcare system. Anyone who knows Lee knows he knows a lot about how to improve healthcare benefits for large employers. He's pretty much the perfect guy to be the chief strategic officer at the HCA. The most amazing thing that I always find about improving healthcare, the structure of healthcare benefits and healthcare benefits for an employer is that it's like having your cake and eating it too. On one hand, both the employer and the employee save money. On the other hand, employees get better care and they spend less time away from work struggling to navigate the healthcare jungle all by themselves. Lee has a playbook for improving the structure of healthcare benefits or healthcare benefits for large employers. And this playbook consists of three chapters that we get into today. The first chapter covers the how of health benefits, including what Lee calls the administrative superstructure. The second chapter in Lee's playbook is the what, which usually comprises drug spend and then on the medical side, how care is delivered for specific clinical conditions like musculoskeletal, cardiometabolic, etc. There are a few conditions that tend to rack up the most costs categorically, and those are the ones that Lee focuses on. The last chapter in Lee's playbook is the who, meaning where employees are steered to for care. And that also includes an emphasis on PCPs. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Lee Lewis, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hey, thanks for having me. From what I understand, Lee, based on your years working with jumbo employers, you have put together a sort of playbook that can help not only to reduce healthcare spend at large employers, but also actually achieve better outcomes, productivity, all the good things. So from what I understand, the first chapter of your playbook focuses on the how of healthcare delivery, or as you call it, the administrative superstructure. So let's talk about that first. I like the name superstructure. It sounds kind of like the hall of justice or something. Yeah, it, it, to me, it means the core vendors that you have in place to administer the network, the dollars, the pricing, and your data. Got it. And is, does that tend to be like one giant TPA, third-party administrator, or is that sort of a constellation of people who all sit at a round table and talk amongst themselves once a week? What, is, what does that look like? Yeah, great question. And it can be both, right? So certainly most employers in the country, they're large self-funded employers, will have one or more ASOs or insurance carriers or PPOs, whatever the, the acronym you want to use, which is the administrator and the network generally combined into a single entity. And they dictate which doctors are in network. And they are the ones who pay those doctors. 
and they also are responsible for collecting, archiving, analyzing, and distributing the data that is necessary to implement other solutions. That is most typical. What I generally do with the companies that I'm working with is look for ways to get best-in-class service and capabilities covering each of those areas. And that generally will require using more than one vendor. Yeah, what I've heard is that, you know, if you have the same organization providing the network as kind of auditing what goes on, you kind of got the wolf, you know, watching the hen house. So you sort of need multiple parties so that you can have the checks and balances that you need. You've got it exactly right. Now, if I'm a self-funded employer, I have a very special responsibility over the funds that are contributed to my health plan because those funds, as, as they are coming from members, are coming from regular moms and dads who work for us. Those funds are being entrusted to the employer to spend in a wise and accountable way, right? And that's called being a fiduciary. The challenge that comes into play is that often it gets more and more difficult to have insight and be able to perform due diligence to ensure the accuracy of those payments. There's so many complexities there that it's really challenging for most of the employers with whom I work to get a clear, robust picture of how their organization spend is being carried out, which makes it really hard to have a good, tight due diligence process over those claims. And, And that's one thing that we work really hard to reverse which, you know, putting it in, in the terms you just did of, of bringing a third-party accountability to those. So we work with employers to contract with uh, claim review firms, with subrogation firms, with analytics firms and others to intake the data in order to get a better sense for how they're doing and what they're paying for. Yeah, because I've heard something like, I don't know, it was an astounding percentage of claims are incorrect. Let's just use that term. Right. No, it's a lot. It is not uncommon for providers to send multiple iterations of a claim in to be paid. And it's not that they're just trying to take advantage of the system. It's usually just that healthcare billing is extremely complicated. And so it's possible to pay things more than once. It's possible to to misinterpret the way the codes are done and, and to pay them wrong. And you have reports that come out every single year from major accounting firms and major banking and consulting institutions that are suggesting that as much as 30 to even I've heard 50% of healthcare is lost to unnecessary care, redundant care, fraud, waste, error, abuse, etc. And so there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for a plan to use good due diligence to be able to recapture and improve their financial situation. That'd be a nice way to save some money, just cut 30% off the top. No, you're exactly right. And and when we do perform these services, it's not uncommon for us to find one, two, three percent or more of the claims, even in claims that are in our paid receipts that are duplicate paid or overpaid that we can then go back and and be able to recover against. And And the carriers are really good about partnering with us to get those overpayments back. Most of the carriers are performing some of these services themselves, and that's that's part of their standard suite. And what I work with my companies to do is to perform a secondary check just to make sure. 
I can understand exactly why you'd have a secondary review, given that if you've got, it's tough to police yourself. It's kind of yes, really tough to police yourself. You force the carrier a little bit into a difficult situation. They are ostensibly supposed to be policing themselves. And that, as you can imagine, that could create challenges internally. If the payment integrity team is finding a bunch of mistakes or challenges or, you know, defects in the system that might affect other people's work in different parts of the organization can just be challenging. Just to keep it easy, we work with companies to perform their own due diligence. And that aligns really well with the expectations under their obligation to take care of their members. This might not be a fair question, Lee, given that you've been on your new job for two weeks now. But is there anything relative to this administrative superstructure or the administrative portion of the playbook that we're talking about now that you really see that you want to dig deeper on in your role with the HTA or, or something that you're looking for? Or, you know, what are your aspirations? The answer is absolutely. Just to keep it very simple and high level, we are working with our members to explore new empowered modalities through which to be able to administer their claims, better measures and capabilities to take advantage of the networks they're using, and superior models to move and analyze their data that will give them more and better insights on a perpetual basis and and a better chance of performing good, solid due diligence. Are we ready to flip the page and look at chapter two, which is the what of delivery? All right. So let's go there. Now, you had mentioned the what of delivery, and then you had tossed in the term clinical, like this is where the clinical comes in. Can you connect those dots between the what and the clinical? Yes. If we say, okay, we're going to analyze all of healthcare and make it better, right? Just the concept of healthcare with the tens of thousands of diagnostic codes and the millions of service code permutations, that is utterly and completely overwhelming. And so to make it simple, we break down the medical spend into a few actionable opportunity pools or or areas of opportunity. So about 80% of your spend goes into medical services, very rough. About 20% goes to pharmacy. If we take the first 20% of pharmacy and we say, okay, what do we find here? It actually subdivides into two opportunity pools as well, each of which is roughly 10% of your total all-in healthcare spend. The first is brand and generic drugs. The second category is getting into specialty drugs and orphan drugs. And so in looking at brand and generic, what we seek to do is to influence the consumer experience to make it better and easier and safer for our members to affordably get access to medicine. First part of that is looking at who you have as your pharmacy benefit manager. The HTA has contracts that it updates consistently with some major pharmacy benefit managers that seek to open up the transparency and the flexibility of that arrangement. Then the second thing we look for, are we looking at drugs that have the best value in terms of brand versus generic? But even within the world of generics, there are generics that are high cost versus generics that are low cost. 
So as we're thinking about the pharmacy benefit manager part of the equation, because obviously, you know, as you said, ensuring that that we are managing the pharmacy benefit manager does become incredibly important. How do you oversee that? It's really difficult to get 100% transparency into those kinds of contracts. The generally best practice with large employers and this is what we try to do also at HDA is to get clear, concise contracts that eliminate all the known areas of opaqueness in the terms. And then to also allow employers maximum flexibility in being able to break out and break apart the different constituent elements of that contract or those contracts. So examples would be an employer getting control of its own formulary and hiring its own P&T committee or, or a set of consultants or a firm to be able to establish a value-based formulary. The second thing is I work with my employers to purchase their specialty drugs uh, through a different avenue that is not through the pharmacy benefit manager. That removes about half of the spend from the pharmacy benefit contract. The third thing is you can look over time at ensuring that it is a full pass-through agreement or a cost-plus agreement. And there are numerous employers, including within the HDA, who have gone to having direct pharmacy contracts where they are working with specific pharmacies and purchasing their, their contracts through a network of pharmacies that they have directly contracted with. Those are all different ways that you can unbundle, so to speak, and to reduce the amount of spend and the amount of influence that's being handled by any one particular vendor to make sure that our, we're continually curating our distribution of, of pharmaceuticals into our membership to make sure that everyone is getting the best value and the best outcomes. Yeah. And if anyone is interested in more of a deep dive into the sort of the machinations of pharmacy benefit managers, my interview with Vinay Patel, interview episode 241, I would definitely recommend. So Lee, let's hop over to the 80% of spend, which is in the medical side of the house. How do you conceive of that? Looking at this area, we identify a handful of categories. The first is musculoskeletal spend, all your spine, all your orthopedic spend, much of your accident spend, much of your ER, and much of your imaging. Either parts of these or all of each of these categories come together for musculoskeletal. And it generally adds to between 13, 14% on the low end of spend to as much as 18 to 20%, depending on the group. And this is the largest category of opportunity that we found. And there are a few strategies that are just very common sense that we work with employers to implement. About 20% approximately of the medical spend is in the muscular skeletal category. Correct. So if you can impact muscular skeletal 20% of 20%, I mean, that's, that's big dollars. So that's why, you know, right. you're, you're kind of focusing on the big box so that if you have an impact, you're not boiling the ocean, you can have a very specific solution, but it actually does have an outsized impact. That's exactly right. So you've got kind of musculoskeletal, which is in that 15 to 20% range. Your next largest opportunity pool is likely cardiometabolic spend in, in diseases. So that's your diabetes, your heart disease, hypertension, and chronic kidney. And those together can go 12 to 15% of spend. 
Your third category and fourth categories is kind of a tide on the public at large, which is cancer, usually around 7%, and maternity around 7%. And those numbers will vary wildly depending on the population. Then we get into behavioral health, which is around 4 to 6%, depending on what all is included in there. Remembering that behavioral health is a little bit of a mixed bag. It includes everything from autism to bulimia to schizophrenia to addiction to ADHD. There's a lot of different conditions that go into that area. What we tend to focus on within the area of behavioral health is hypochondria. And I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But when we take those five categories, they make up a significant portion, over a third of medical spend, upwards to a half, somewhere in that range. And as we look at simply five areas of opportunity, that, that's not that overwhelming. We can do that. If you just put in one good solution on each of those each year, in five years, you'll be able to tackle approximately half your spend. And if the solution that we put in place or the strategy we put in place to each category has an impact of 20 to 30 to 40 or more percent on spend, you could eliminate upwards of 15 to 20 percent of your total spend. And we are talking about reducing spend, but it's my understanding that you're actually also improving quality, that you're getting a handle around this. So it's not like you're actually cutting care while you're cutting spend. It's like you're making care better. Right. And and that's, that's the virtuous cycle of all of this is the mission is let's save lives and let's save millions of dollars in healthcare that has been spent unnecessarily. The idea is if we get the right care at the right time, even if we pay more for it, if we eliminate the 30 to 50% that is unnecessary or redundant or erroneous, we can still save a ton of money while delivering amazing outcomes. And that's the goal. Do you want to just give maybe one example from one of the categories of how you are reducing spend while at the same time getting employees better care? Let's look at musculoskeletal. That's the largest opportunity pool and generally just because of its size where we will often begin. One of the interesting things about the way we treat chronic pain today, according to the WHO, chronic pain, chronic back pain in particular is a condition. And it's generally referred to as such is that you have chronic back pain. But something that every one of us knows is that pain is a symptom, generally speaking, not a disease. There are upwards of five or more different causes of chronic back pain, each of which has its own specific therapy that resolves it. But what we know and what we practice today is that if someone comes in presenting symptoms of chronic back pain, we know that, okay, we know that there are too many back surgeries. So rather than letting someone get on opioids, which are also extremely devastating to our society, we're going to keep people off opioids and we're not going to send them to surgery. We're going to send everybody who presents with chronic back pain into physical therapy. And that's fine, except you've got to get it diagnosed first. So we work with employers to get someone diagnosed before they go down a treatment path. And sometimes that diagnosis means they never go to physical therapy, but they go straight to getting a medical injection. But that's the way we need to be thinking about that, not just trying to save a few bucks on a cheaper therapy over one that's more expensive. And it gets much better outcomes for the patient. You know, I also interviewed episode 240, Olivia Ross from the Pacific Business Group on Health, who runs their 
centers of excellence. And she was also reiterating the kind of the same thing. There are certain institutions around the country which are well known to be able to and are trusted to be able to accurately diagnose a patient. And that is a lot of times the hardest part, because in many cases, if you and and I say this in in the nicest possible way, but if you're hammered, everything's a nail, you know, so you have to be really careful. If you send someone to physical therapy, everything's a physical therapy problem. If you send someone to a surgeon, everything's a surgery. Right. Finding a a partner, a vendor, a, a center of excellence who is able to accurately diagnose. I mean, it just sounds so common sense, right? Like you, you shouldn't offer treatment until you have a diagnosis, but it seems to be something which maybe it's easier said than done. I'm not sure. I think you're exactly right. It makes perfectly logical common sense. And it's what any one of us would do for ourselves or a family member if we knew that were an option or if we knew what was lacking oftentimes in the status quo. And so that's our opportunity as leaders within healthcare and employer benefits is it it becomes our opportunity to help source, find, and deploy the best possible therapies that we can find anywhere in the country or even the world to bring those in and make them available to our members wherever we can. That's why we have the best job in the world. It's really wonderful. Yeah, I can imagine it's very gratifying. Instead of having a patient bounce around to all these different physicians and trying to get help and put pieces together in order to facilitate their own diagnosis, the playbook that you've put together, you know, to be able to help a patient get to that good place faster and in the process cut down on all of the steps that they might have to go through if they're trying to do it themselves, which are very costly and time consuming. They're missing work while they're at all these doctor appointments. That's exactly right. Is there any other examples that you want to bring up there? I'm assuming that based on what you're saying, that for each one of these different clinical areas, you have maybe a pick list of a few different offerings, which may be more appropriate for different employers with different age groups, as as you're saying. But if I was going to look at your, you know, little black book, Lee, what I would see is that there's kind of a different, like three different service providers for each one of the different categories. And then you work with the employer to select which one is most appropriate for them? Something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's it, there's not always a vendor that we can use. Sometimes it's just an approach or a strategy. But to kind of give a high level within cardiometabolic disease, we work to get members therapy that has been proven. There's a lot of great research that's been coming out of Copenhagen over the past, I don't know, 18 years. You can reduce heart attacks and stroke by over 70%. That's a massive opportunity to save lives to say nothing of potential cost increases. Within maternity, we've seen that if you can get people access, and this seems radical, but get people access to good best practice fertility coverage for couples who are suffering from infertility, who want to have babies, but for whatever reason can't, that if we can get them access to best in practice care, we can reduce the number of high-risk twins by over 50, 60, 70% which ends up having it so that the benefit pays for itself. You know, we look at cancer. We found that when you go in to get a second opinion from a center of excellence on cancer, and this may have been covered by previous interviews, is that the therapy or the diagnosis is going to change almost half the time. And when that happens, people are going to get a better outcome and you're going to see a significant reduction in cost. 
I mentioned the last area of, uh, within behavioral health. One area where we're working a lot right now is within hypochondria. Hypochondria is a fascinating condition. Going to the doctor will never solve hypochondria. And the way that we work with those individuals cannot be done through healthcare. You have to work with those individuals through human interaction. And so we'll work with them to be able to have someone calling them, giving them a chance to talk about the challenges they're experiencing, letting them have a chance to speak with someone almost like a therapist who they can talk to every other day throughout the entire year. And by giving them that, they'll draw down their use of the medical system. That's a handful of the models that we'll use. Yeah, and that last one, I certainly can see maybe Medicare wants to take a page out of your book if if my grandmother is any. I'm sure a lot of oh. people have grandmothers too. <laughs> Pretty much their entire social calendar consists of their nice young men, that, as in doctors that they're going to go visit. I mean, this is a very common thing. Although there's a flip side to that, as any rare disease sufferer can tell you. You know, sometimes it is actually a rare disease that no one can figure out or that hasn't put the pieces together. So I guess there's, a, right. there's a balance It's funny there. you mention that, too. You know, when we're reaching out to people who we think might benefit from sort of a care coordination partner, those who are truly suffering from a rare, difficult disease that they just cannot get a diagnosis, they have no interest in talking to somebody over the phone. <laughs> and so people very quickly <laughs> self-select into or out of the program, whereas those who truly are seeking uh, a human-to-human connection, and that's that's the driving purpose, they readily adopt and, and eagerly appreciate the chance to have an additional person to talk to. So it's, it's really interesting. Wow, that is absolutely fascinating. All right, so let's flip the page onto the third chapter of our playbook here, which is the who. So as you had mentioned, this is who is providing the care? What is the center of excellence? What is the physician? What's your advice here, Lee? Yeah, the way I think about this is two concentric circles. I have to make everything down into simple pictures for my brain to wrap around. The center circle is primary care. That's the doorway to American healthcare. And these are the people who have the best ability to help chronic people stay adherent. They're also the people who control the referral pattern that we might use to access specialists in the second sort of outer circle of of the two concentric circles. We approach each of those things one at a time. First, primary care. We want to be able to find primary care physicians who are practicing at the top of their license. The concept that we use here, we call it a super clinic, which is a physician who is able to resolve, treat and resolve 85 to 90% of all care. They commit to practicing elevated certified therapies. And then finally, they adhere to a data-driven referral network in exchange for doing all that, because that, that seems like quite a tall order. We work with these independent physician groups and physicians to be able to earn more money per patient. We get them data and benchmarking information that allows them to see how they're doing and how their patients are performing in the greater system and to see adherence rates amongst their patients. We give them data they've never had before. We also give them all the training that is necessary for them to elevate their practices. As has been said many times, the traditional fee-for-service kind of payment model doesn't work so well for PCPs because it undervalues time. And one of the greatest yeah. gifts, in a way, that that PCPs can offer patients and what it takes to actually 
successfully manage some of the things that you're talking about is more time. So if you limit the PCP to a seven minute visit or you pay them as if it was a seven minute visit or whatever, then you kind of minimize the impact that a PCP can have. So what my interpretation was of what you just said by getting these PCPs or enabling or empowering these PCPs to better manage and care for and be that doorway that you're looking for and use all this data, you'd you'd almost have to change how you were paying them or make it a little bit richer somehow. That's exactly right. And that's what we do. We try to get them more patients. We try to get them better reimbursements. We try to take them out of collections. And we try to partner with them in in a really true, transparent way around the patient, the outcome, the data, and the ecosystem at large. And that gets us into the second kind of concentric circle, which is looking at the uh, specialist network. The thought there is that when we look at specialists, we want to find those who drive the highest value, which we quantify on not two metrics, but really are looking at three. The first is looking at price, not just the cost of their service, but the overall cost. If if you include the CPT code for the physician, but also the, the hospital system, et cetera. Second is we look at the outcomes quality. So are people being readmitted? Are there abundant complications? Are members getting better quickly? But then the third and and most tricky area of all is getting at appropriateness, which is understanding if the therapy, if the service was even needed at all. And this is tricky because many of the most technically gifted surgeons who charge very reasonable prices are performing pretty aggressive uh, numbers of surgery sometimes on people who don't need the surgery at all. And when those surgeries are taking place, the member gets well quickly, the price might be agreeable, five stars on Yelp, and everybody feels good about the interaction. But the reality was, if that surgery never should have occurred at all, why in the world you know, are we paying for it? And we need to eliminate the number of unnecessary surgeries. And we look at the practice patterns of individual physicians in different specialties in order to find those who are practicing appropriate care. And if we don't start with that practice pattern, all the cost and quality data is unfortunately corrupted, which which makes it really hard to get at an ultimate measure of overall value. Yeah, there's a Jack Wenberg quote where he says, if it's called a medical error when you operate on the wrong leg, what do you call it if you operate on someone who doesn't need surgery? Bingo. And our hope is that over the coming couple of years, we'll be able to get that data in every town on every specialist and be able to start giving that transparency and rewarding those who are practicing great medicine and inspiring and inviting those who are a little below the mark to improve. It's a it's a big flexible tent. We want every doctor to be to be able to practice at the top of his or her respective game. And sometimes that's all it takes. Like if I'm a physician, how do I know that I'm overperforming X, Y, and Z unless somebody shows me the practice patterns of my peers? That's exactly right. What are you looking to accomplish with the HTA? Like, do you see areas that you're immediately going to focus on? Is there something in particular that you're looking for? Where are you headed right now? The way I'm thinking about it is that the HTA is a collection of employers who all want to do the right thing, which is get great value, great outcomes, and relevant, appropriate care to their members. 
in a way that drives a great user experience. We, we all want the same thing. But getting to that destination actually has many acceptable paths. And so what we are looking to do is to work with each individual employer and to chart their path to that destination in the way that best behooves their company at any given point in time. For some members of the HDA, that means tackling data and administration first and getting control of the admin. For other members, it is tackling musculoskeletal diagnostics and orthopedic referrals first. For others, it's getting a handle on primary care and eliminating ER. All three of those steps would be wholly embraced by the HDA as a bold step forward in in making a difference in healthcare. And we are bringing leading strategies to be able to achieve those desired outcomes. So Lee, in your role as the chief strategy officer over at the HTA, if I am, let's just say, a broker, and I'm currently working with a large employer, and that large employer either happens to be a member of the HTA already, or if the organization that I'm serving, the employer that I'm serving joins the HTA, what, what advice do you have for brokers? Let's start there. Any broker who's listening right now to this podcast, I would say, If you're working to try and help improve healthcare, you are a friend and an ally with the HTA in trying to solve this incredibly important problem. And if you are looking to make a difference and looking to help your employer clients, feel free to reach out to me because we are looking to partner with those brokers and those consultants who are looking to do the right thing and to bring the right and the best solutions to market to try and improve healthcare for for regular Americans. And if you're just wanting to earn commissions and you're not really involved in all of this, you, you probably haven't listened this long into the podcast. Good point. And same question for provider organizations, hospitals, potentially, you know, academic medical centers or, or centers of excellence. With you at the helm of, of strategy at the HTA, is there any advice that you'd have? Same thing there is we're looking for hospitals that are eager to partner, that are eager to work together to get better outcomes and better feedback loops, and better results really for members. And one thing that is often forgotten to deliver much better user experience. Any hospital that is interested in these kinds of things, that is working hard to get at not just the business of healthcare, but to get at and be willing to start transforming their own business model, which is a very difficult task you know, and they're looking for someone to partner with or to work with, that is likely an an allied system that we would be very interested in talking to and working with. We're looking for accountability. We're looking for partnership. We're looking for new and innovative ways to help take care of the member and to create connected networks of individuals who are looking out for the whole person, not just, you know, one organ system at a time. And it sounds like because you've got all this data and you're actively working to get it aggregated and to be able to derive insights from that data, you're going to know very soon, if you don't already, which health systems are hitting the mark and which systems aren't. That's a great point. At the end of the day, though, hospital systems are not monolith in that they have great physicians and they have physicians who are still practicing below what we might expect, right? 
It's not a Lake Wobegon where every doctor is above average. We are looking at each system as a collection of great individuals and individuals who are still on a journey of progress. And our hope is to be able to partner with those who are practicing great medicine and bring them as many patients as they can handle to receive appropriate care and to help inspire and support those who are still on a journey to be able to get the data and the transparency and the feedback that they might need to practice great care and be someone who we'd be delighted to work with. And if someone is interested, you have elicited several calls to action, Lee. Where can people go to either reach you or get more information? Where would you direct them? Go to the HDA website or look me up on LinkedIn. Send me a connection, reference this podcast, and and let's talk. Lee Lewis, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value podcast today. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.